me invite you to open back up to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8. We'll be looking at verses 35 to 38. In our last session, we were looking at the demanding call of Jesus in verse 34, the call to follow him as his disciple. And we're going to consider now these incentives that follow that Jesus gives in order for us to encourage us to take up the cross and follow Jesus. So the title of this message is Worth the Cost. And let me read here, beginning at verse 34. When he, Jesus, had called the people to himself with his disciples, with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me And my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Let's again seek the Lord's face in prayer. We thank you, God, that we can be here. We thank you for this time in your word. And we ask that you would help us at the end of a long day. Lord, we pray that you would give us strength and we pray Give us strength of mind that we might focus upon your word and learn from it. We pray that you would bless this time in your word. We ask that your spirit would move, that your spirit would be at work as your word is proclaimed to give help both to me and to those who hear your word, that it might be received. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Every day we make evaluations or value judgments. We determine the value of things, assign value to various things. And we do this often without thinking about it. So, for example, your time. You only have so much time in the day. And I'm sure many of you, as you're getting older, you're starting to make to-do lists and realizing that your to-do lists are always longer or they're seeming to get longer and longer and you can't quite finish them. So you're making an evaluation as you look at all of the things that you have to do for school, mom and dad want you to do this, etc. And you are going to prioritize those things. That's a value judgment, an evaluation. And you're saying, this is how I'm going to spend my time today. Even that language of spending time. Or maybe you're at the store, you've got some hard-earned money, and you're asking the question, how much am I willing to spend on these new clothes? Or maybe you're shopping online, whatever it is. You're you're making evaluations. Is it worth it to let go of this money in order to get this thing? Maybe your favorite drink at Dunkin' or Starbucks. Is it worth it? You're making evaluations, value judgments. Well, in our text, we are called to make an evaluation. And it's nothing trivial like clothes or what you're going to drink, if anything, at Starbucks, it's an evaluation about matters of supreme importance. Jesus is calling us to make a value judgment. And the key question is what we began with, really our theme, is it worth it to follow Christ? 
If it's so costly and so demanding, is it worth the cost? That's the question. So there is an evaluation. Is it worth it? I want to remind you briefly of the context, and that is that Jesus has spoken hard words. He has said who he is, or Peter has confessed it, and then he has begun to tell them what must happen. They did not want to hear it. Peter rebuked him because Jesus said, I must suffer many things. I must be rejected. I must be killed and then rise again the third day. So there's hard things that he has said. And then he's issued that demanding call to discipleship to follow him in verse 13. Which we just read. And then now he gives some incentives, some encouragements to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after him. He knows it's costly, and he knows the weakness of his 12 disciples, and he knows our weakness that we need some incentives. So that's what we have here. Notice that Jesus reasons with them. And in my translation, I have a repetition of the word for, F-O-R. So look, for example, at verse 35, for whoever desires to save his life. Then you look at verse 36, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me, and so on. Jesus is reasoning with them. And each statement here that begins with that word for offers another argument or incentive to follow Jesus. So that's important to see. So does that make sense? You see what I'm talking about here? When he's saying four, 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 he's giving, here's another incentive. Here's another argument, another encouragement for you to take up the cross and follow me. So he's piling on these incentives and he's not just trying to drive us to the conclusion that it's worth it to follow him. He's trying to encourage us and he's trying to urge us on to follow him at all costs. Now, in doing this, Jesus is going to focus our attention on two great realities. The first one is the reality of the soul, and the second is the reality of his return or his second coming. So there's these two great realities that Jesus, as he's making these arguments, as he's giving incentives to follow him, the reality of the soul, that's the first thing, and then the reality of his return. And then based on these two great realities, we're going to see arguments that Jesus makes. So verses 35 to 37, we'll look at first and we'll see two arguments or two incentives based on that first great reality of the soul. And then in verse 38, one argument focusing on the reality of his return. So that's where we're going here. Firstly, these arguments based on the reality of of the soul, verses 35 to 37. The reality is simply that you have a never dying soul. You have a soul as well as a body. The end of your being, the end of your existence is not the grave. You have a never dying soul. And Jesus clearly speaks of the soul in our text. Let me remind you, verse 36 He says, what will it profit a man or a woman or a boy or a girl? What will it profit this person if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, if you look at verse 35, the verse before that, those verses, Jesus is also speaking of this reality of the soul, but it's not as clear because the word there that's translated soul 
can also be translated life, and that's how it's translated there. For whoever desires to save his life or save his soul will lose it, but whoever loses his life or soul for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And we'll get to that later, but I just want you to see that Jesus is very clearly in verses 35, 36, 37, talking about the reality of the soul. But it's translated life and translated soul. And I want you to think about this here. It's not surprising that these are two ways to translate this same word because life and the soul are bound together. The soul is the breath of life. The soul is what gives life to the body. We, we don't just have a soul. We're not just bodies that have souls. The Bible teaches we are body and soul. We're in a body-soul entity. And it's the soul that gives life to our body so that when, when the body and soul are separated, that is death. So when you have a body without a soul, what is it? It's a lifeless body. It's a corpse. So we are body and soul joined together in unity. Your soul is the immaterial part of your being. But also, we need to know that the soul is not just bound up with life, but with eternal life. The Bible talks about the salvation of the soul. It talks about eternal life in terms of your soul being saved. And this doesn't mean that our bodies are not going to be redeemed. One of the great promises of the scripture is that these bodies will be raised incorruptible. When we die, it's our soul that goes to be with Jesus And the raising of our body awaits Christ's return. But that day is coming. So to say the salvation of the soul doesn't doesn't say that our bodies are not involved in that salvation. But that's how the scripture speaks sometimes. The salvation of the soul is, is eternal salvation. And in contrast to lose your soul, which is what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about eternal destruction. He's talking about losing your life forever. He's talking about being cast into hell. So that's what Jesus is speaking about here when he's talking about either losing your soul or saving your soul or your life. That's the first reality Jesus sets before us. You have a never dying soul and it will either be saved or lost forever. And based on this reality, Jesus makes two arguments. So he gives two incentives here to follow him. And here's the first argument based on this reality of the soul. It is that only those who follow him will save their souls. We see this in verse 35. Let me read it again. Only those who follow Jesus will save their souls. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. The argument answers the question, what about my life? So the call goes out, verse 34, the demanding call, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And the question that might come up in somebody is, what about my life? If I follow Christ, will it cost me my life? That's the question that Jesus is now answering. Lord, will it cost me my life? And he says, your soul will be safe forever. That's the argument he's making here. At, the, at verse 35, 
How I mentioned there that soul and life. So think here. You have to think hard here. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. He's essentially saying whoever desires to preserve his earthly life will lose his soul. It's a play on words, on those two meanings of the word. And what he means is whoever desires to preserve his life more than following Christ, who won't follow Christ because of a preoccupation with preserving their life, he's saying they will lose their soul. That's the argument. And this is the first part. This is the negative part of the argument. This desire for self-preservation. Now, we can't take this out of context. Again, context is key. What Jesus is not saying is that a desire to preserve your life is always wrong. That's not what he's saying. Self-preservation can be a very good thing. You know the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. One of the applications of that is that we should, we should do everything we can, use all lawful means to preserve our own lives and the lives of others. So Jesus isn't saying that you should be reckless, that you shouldn't be concerned about what you put in your body or getting sleep and so on. He's not talking about that. He's not saying anything about whether it be right or wrong to seek medical help to save your life. None of that is coming into picture here. The key to understanding what Jesus is saying is found in a conflict between opposing desires. Look again at the text. Verse 34, the demanding call, whoever desires to come after me. And then look at verse 35. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. That's key in understanding here, this this competing desire. On the one hand, to follow Christ, to come after him. On the other hand, to preserve your life. So this is one or the other. The person who would rather preserve their life than follow Christ. That's the person Jesus is talking about. There's these two incompatible, mutually exclusive desires that are in direct opposition. Self-preservation and following Christ. Christ. They can't exist in harmony. You see that? So he's referring to the person who desires to save his life or her life rather than deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So the person who would say, I will follow Jesus, but only so far. If it might cost me my life, then I don't want to follow him. The cost is too high. Following Christ isn't worth it. That's the person Jesus is speaking to. And it's to that person Jesus says, you will lose your soul. You will lose your soul if that's the case. Don't forget you have a never dying soul. You may preserve your earthly life, but he's saying you will forfeit eternal life. The second part of this argument is positive. He wants to encourage us to come after him. He says, whoever comes after him, even at the cost of losing his life, will save his soul. He will receive the gift of everlasting life. So notice again, verse 35, there's a positive side to it. He says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it, will save his soul forever. That's what Jesus is saying. So for the sake of argument, he's envisioning this ultimate sacrifice, losing your life for his sake and for the gospel's sake. What if it would cost you your life? He wants us to think about that. Now, the thought of death is abhorrent. 
We hear it and we recoil, and rightly so, because death is an evil thing. Death only entered this world because sin entered this world. We need to understand that. Death is an evil thing. It's an unnatural thing. It's a ripping apart of body and soul, something that God joined together. So when we hear of death, it's right that we would recoil at that thought. But Jesus wants us to think about this cost because the fear of death has kept many people from following Christ. And because of that, they've lost their soul forever. So it's nearsighted. They're just looking at this life. He's urging us not to give in to this fear. He's saying, yes, it might cost you your life, but let me urge you to think about your soul, to think about eternity. There's something more to be feared than death. Jesus says that's the loss of your soul. And there is someone more to be feared than anyone who might kill you. And that is God. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 28 to his disciples, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's he saying to fear? God. He's saying this to his disciples. They needed to hear it. We need to hear it as well. So that's the first argument based on the reality of the soul. Even if you lose your life for Christ, your soul will be safe forever. Only those who follow Christ will save their souls. All right? Second argument, second incentive based on this reality that you have a never dying soul is this, that there's nothing more valuable than your soul. There's nothing more valuable than your soul. Verse 36, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will it profit him? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And the answer is assumed. There's nothing he can give in exchange for his soul because there's nothing more valuable than your soul. So the first argument answered the question, what about my life? Jesus, is it going to cost me my life if I follow you? This answers a different question, but it's related. And it's, what about the good life? What about my ambitions? What about getting the things in this world? What about success and fame and whatever it might be that you would be tempted to grab after? Is following Christ going to cost me my ambition? That's what he's getting at here. Is it going to cost me the good life? So the snare here is not so much the desire for self-preservation that would cause us to run away from Christ at the moment when it might cost us our life. The snare here, the stumbling block here is the desire for getting the goods of this life, for having the good life. And those who fall into this trap are those who have their minds fixed on the things of the earth. Like we were talking last time, we need to get our minds fixed on the things of God, on things that are above. You know it as well as I do that there are people who spend all of their life, their time and their energy seeking to get more, 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 more stuff, seeking to rise. And Jesus is saying that to exchange anything in this life for your soul is the worst exchange that any person can possibly make. So people say, On the one hand, I don't want to lose my life. Other people say, well, I don't want to lose my stuff or I don't want to lose my position. 
So that's what Jesus is stressing here. What will it profit a man if he, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So let's just think about this. It's a, it's a what-if scenario here. Jesus is saying, let's just imagine you can gain the whole world. And by that, it's just the, the, this is the sum total. This is everything you could possibly want. So just think about it. We would say today, all right, if you could be, I don't even know if you guys know what Forbes is, but Forbes magazine, the Forbes billionaire list, you could top the billionaire list. You could be on Time Magazine as one of the most influential people. Maybe some of you guys want to be an athlete. You could be the top athlete. You've got everything going for you. You have the world. Jesus says, if it were possible for you to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul, would it be worth it? A lot of people conclude yes. Think about that. Would it be worth it if you could gain the whole world but lose your soul. So he's saying, basically, you need to have your gain column here, do a little bit of accounting, and in the gain column, you could put all of these things in the world that somebody might want to have. Power, wealth, whatever it might be, and, that, and yet in the loss column, you have your never dying soul. Jesus is saying, there's nothing a man can give, however great, however much in this life, in exchange for his soul, but millions of people do it. And Jesus is urging us to to think rightly, to think soberly and clearly and understand we have a never dying soul and there's nothing more valuable than your never dying soul. If you think about this, you look at a man that has everything and yet he doesn't have Christ. The world looks at that man or looks at that woman and says that they are wildly successful got everything. They've got the job, they've got the career or, or the credentials, the right school, the cars. And then you look at somebody who has Christ, but maybe they don't have everything. The world says, this man's a fool. But God says, this man's a fool. He's given up something far, far, far greater. So don't live your life as if you don't have a soul. So if you missed everything else I said, I know there's some things in this text It can maybe be confusing, but just don't live your life as if you don't have a soul. What's your life? James asked that question. He says, what is your life? He says, it's a vapor. So it's cold outside. You breathe. You know, you see the little puff. That's your life. That's the picture. It's a vapor. It's here. It's gone. That's James 4.14. What is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. Just like that breath on a cold day. Even if you live to be a hundred, your life is a vapor. And you need to get this perspective. And the sooner you get this perspective, the better. And it's hard when you're young. But ask any old person, find the oldest person you can say, was life short? Are you like, that was a vapor? The scriptures repeatedly tell us life is short. You're young, you say, I've got my whole life ahead of me. You maybe don't. But life is short, even if you do have a long life ahead of you. So don't live your life as if you do not have a soul. One day your soul will leave your body. Unless Christ returns before you die, one day your soul will leave your body. You will die. And you need to consider that and ask yourself, what then? After that, am I prepared? Are you prepared? 
Jesus is telling you how to be prepared to come to him, to embrace him, to cling to him, to find life in him, to follow him. Your body will lie in the grave and you will either pass into glory and you'll be with Christ or you'll be cast into hell forever. And there's no middle ground. That's it's black and white in the scriptures. So those are the realities that confront us in our text. So I'm urging you to consider these things today and don't put it off. Don't put it off. Think about these things today. Think about these things tomorrow. Consider you have a never dying soul. Consider there is either hell or heaven. Think about these things. Now there's an argument, secondly, based on the reality of Christ's return. So the first great reality, the reality of the soul. Two incentives, two incentives there. But now there's this other great reality that Jesus wants us to think about. He's going to confront us with this. And there's one argument here, one incentive, and it's the reality of the return of Christ. We see this in verse 38. He speaks of the coming of the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Jesus, like we saw earlier, Jesus is speaking of himself. This was his favorite title for himself. So Jesus is talking about his own return and he's speaking of his coming, notice, as a certainty. It's not if, but it's when. When he comes, the Son of Man, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He states it as an irrefutable fact. It's not argued It's just assumed, it's stated. It's sort of like Genesis 1.1. There's no argument given for the existence of God. It's just assumed to be true. In the beginning, God created. Same thing here. Christ saying, I will return. I will come again in great power and glory. That's the reality here that we are dealing with. Now, the Bible speaks of two comings of Christ, two personal, physical comings of Christ. You know the first one. Christ came into this world as a baby, the Son of God, God taking on flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the language that John uses in John 1. That's the first coming of Christ when he came into this world. But the second coming is when Christ is going to return Christ still has a body. He's seated at the right hand of God, crucified, buried, risen, ascended to the right hand of God, and he is returning, and it will be a visible returning. We're all going to see it. He's going to come. He has a body still. He's still the God-man, fully God, fully man, and we will see him coming again. This day will come. The day will come, and it is The last day, it is the day of judgment. Christ will return to judge. This day is coming. He will come and and he will appear glorious and triumphant on that day. So that's the picture here. Look at the language. In the glory of his father with the holy angels. Have you guys ever seen angels? No, you haven't, right? The sight of the angels alone would be enough to stun us. But we're going to see Jesus in all of his glory. That will be a truly awesome sight to behold. Unimaginable glory and splendor and majesty as Christ is coming with this train of angels 
in the glory of his Father. On that day, he's going to appear in unveiled glory. So when he was here on earth, his glory was largely covered. It was veiled. It was hidden. Yes, men beheld his glory, as John says in John 1.14. Men beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But men did not behold his glory in all of its brightness. It was veiled for a time. They beheld it as when we look at the sun shining through the clouds. You know those days when you can just look at the sun and you can see it because it's, it's hazy enough, it's cloudy enough, and you can look at it. That's how they saw Jesus' glory. It was veiled, it was covered. But if, if the clouds were removed, you couldn't look at the sun. When Christ comes again, there will be an unveiling, a revelation of his glory. So if he appeared humble and if he was despised in his first coming, he's going to be glorious and exalted in his second coming. His glory and majesty will be uncovered. Now, three of Jesus' disciples got a preview of that. And that's in Mark 9. So you can read this on your own if you want. You read Mark 8 this morning. You could go on and look at this. Peter, James, and John were taken up on the mountain. I'm not going to look at this text with you right now. But they got a momentary preview of the glory of Christ breaking through the veil. And that was, I believe, in part to encourage them to the suffering that they would face. To know, yes, he is glorious and he is returning. On the day that Christ returns, every mouth will be stopped. So all those who mocked Christ, their mouths will be stopped. And the scriptures say every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father on that day. So nobody's going to be mocking. Nobody's going to be rejecting him on that day. This is the one whom we are called to follow. That's the point. Jesus is saying, I'm returning in great power and glory. He's saying, you are called to follow me. So at his first coming, despised, rejected, crucified. Second coming, revealed in all his glory and majesty. This is the one we're called to follow, but it's also the one that we're tempted to be ashamed of. And Jesus knows this. We are tempted to be ashamed of this glorious one who is coming in great power and in glory. As we live, to use Jesus' language, in the midst of an adulterous or unfaithful and sinful generation. A generation that wants, by and large, nothing to do with Jesus. A generation that rejects and even hates Christ and those who follow him. We live, if we're going to follow Christ, we have to live in the midst of such a generation. Now, there have been Christians who have tried to go off and isolate themselves from their surroundings. But the Bible doesn't encourage that. We live in the midst of this sinful, adulterous generation. So we have this stumbling block, and it is one of the greatest stumbling blocks, I think, that a Christian faces. This desire for the world's approval, it can be very strong. Nobody likes to be ridiculed. Nobody likes to be rejected. By nature, we're people pleasers. We want people to like us. We crave approval. And Jesus is fully aware of this, so he gives us this incentive. 
the demanding call goes out. He says, again, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And there's these questions that arise. Do you remember what the other questions were that we just considered? What about my life? Right? And then what about the good life? What about my ambitions? There's a different question here. It's what about my reputation? What will people think of me if I follow Christ? If I follow Christ, will it cost me the applause of the world? Will it cost me the approval of my peers, of my friends, of my coworkers, even parents maybe? So you see how Jesus now is going on to something else to help us count the cost. That's why he says this. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So it's a warning, this incentive. Here's an incentive by way of warning warning us not to be ashamed. And Jesus isn't talking about those who would would stumble and would struggle with this. What he's talking about is rejecting Christ out of shame or fear of shame. That's what he's talking about. Being ashamed of him and his words and turning away from him. What does it mean to be ashamed of Christ? Shame's a powerful, painful emotion. A sense of Deep pain is involved in shame and even disgrace, humiliation, embarrassment, but it's, it's deep pain. So you might be ashamed, for example, of your behavior. You do something and you say, I'm ashamed the way that I've behaved. I behave foolishly. It brings you deep pain the way that you've acted. It grieves you. And you're even humiliated. That's a sense of shame. Jesus is saying the same thing. Those who feel the same way about me, about taking a stand with me, who are grieved that that they identify with me and with my words, the gospel. That's what he's talking about here. We might even say he's talking about, in a word that maybe we're more familiar with, those who are embarrassed to follow him and so embarrassed that they won't follow him. So in verse 35, the stumbling block was self-preservation. Verse 36 and 7, it was this all-consuming desire for earthly gain, but now it's a preoccupation with the world's approval. So you see that? He's shining a light on the stumbling blocks. As he's giving us incentives, he could give a lot more incentives, but here are a few of the major stumbling blocks as you seek to follow Christ And one of them, a big one here, possibly the main one for you as young people and for me as well, is this preoccupation with the world's approval, this temptation to be ashamed because we're too concerned about what other people think of us. We're unwilling, as one person puts it, to be made an object of contempt in this world as Jesus was. Remember him, mocked, ridiculed. Jesus is saying, that might be you. And some people are going to be unwilling, and so they'll turn away from Christ. That's what we're talking about. Now, it's it's true that a genuine believer might for a time be ashamed of Christ and even turn away for a time. Peter, we, we talked about Peter earlier. 
Peter's sin was serious. He denied Christ three times. I don't even know the man. And he turned away from Christ. But we know that God granted him repentance and he came back. And that was not the last story. That was not the final chapter of Peter's story. So in the end, he did not deny Christ. In the end, he was not ashamed. So maybe you at times have been ashamed and there's, there's, that's not an unforgivable sin, but confess it to God and say, God, grant me a heart to repent and to be unashamed of you. This is a struggle that even I face. Even pastors face these struggles. I am often too concerned what people think of me. What, what are, what, what's the world going to think? You know as well as I do that the pressure is being turned up on Christians. If you just read the news, and more and more I think it's going to cost us to take a stand with Christ. To, stake, to take a stand for him and for his words. It's going to cost us, and we're too concerned sometimes about becoming an object of the world's ridicule. Just the other day, I was sitting in a barber's chair, and, and the conversation turned to spiritual matters, and was able to say some things, but you know, I have to confess that I held back. And why was I holding back? Why did I not speak more clearly of Christ? Was it shame? Was I afraid with this guy? I don't even know what he's going to think of me. So these are the things we wrestle with. Jesus knows this is a real battle that you are going to face, possibly every day. You're going to be faced with this temptation to be silent. You're going to feel pressure from friends. You might even feel pressure here at this retreat. I don't know. You're going to feel pressure and you might worry, what's, what's going to be the outcome if I take my stand here? And that's what Jesus is, is addressing. We need to remember at such times, and here's the point. We need to remember at such times that Christ is returning. We need to remember that he is the victor and he is returning in great power and glory. Keep that day in view. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. He's returning. And on that day, the only thing will matter is his approval, not the world's approval. The only thing that will matter when Christ returns is his approval. Look again at that language. He's saying, those who are ashamed of me, he says, when I returned, I will be ashamed of them. He's saying, those who out of shame denied me and wouldn't follow me and disowned me, he's saying, when I return, I'm going to disown them. I'm going to say, depart from me. So these, these are, this is a strong warning, a terrifying warning, one that should get our attention. Jesus is saying, I will seal their doom when I return. He's going to return as judge. He's saying, they rejected me out of shame. I'm going to come back and I will disown them but to his own people. The positive side of that would be Christ receiving his own when he returns. When Christ returns, if you're a believer, the judge is your redeemer and savior and he will own you and he will say, come to me. So to many, he will say, depart, depart, but to many, he will say, come to me and he will receive you and he will say, enter into life, enter into my glory, enter into my triumph. I want to close with two simple applications here 
especially for believers, for those of us who are seeking to follow Christ and are struggling with the temptation to be ashamed of Christ. Two applications here, two realities, one present and the other future. The first is simply what Jesus says, and that is that we live in the midst of an adulterous and sinful generation. That was true in Jesus' day. It's true in our day. It's been true ever since Genesis 3 and the fall. Every generation has been unfaithful to God. That's what he means by adulterous. Every generation has been sinful. And this is what makes it hard to stand for Christ. Because we're in the midst of a generation that is opposed to God. A generation that is going to push back and will resist if we speak the words of Christ, if we speak truth, if we take our stand with the Lord in any way. But we are called to stand out as disciples. Two, we could say swim against the tide of ungodliness and unbelief in this world. It must be if God has saved you. We live as children of light. God, by grace, if he saved you, he's made you a child of light to walk in the light. Jesus even said, you are the light of the world. So we shine as lights, as believers in this dark world, like stars in a dark sky. We shine and so we stand out. And it has to be that way. You can't desire just to be a, a, a secret servant of the Lord. Nobody's going to know that you serve Christ. That's not what the Bible calls us to. We are to shine. And when we shine, the darkness is going to resist it. It's not going to like it. The Bible says their deeds will be exposed and the darkness will not like it. So you'll face opposition. It's one thing to own Christ in the midst of other believers. Gathering with believers on the Lord's Day, maybe even here at this retreat. It's one thing to own Christ when you're not expecting great opposition. It's another thing when you go home on Monday to own Christ. If you work, you go to school, maybe you're on a team, whatever it might be. That's when the temptation comes. When we're in the midst of unbelievers... When we're among those who might ridicule and they might mock us and they might, as people say today, cancel us, whatever it might be. Uh, There was a man in our church recently who posted something online. So this doesn't just happen, of course, uh, in person, but he took a stand for Christ online and he he posted something. Just I'm not going to say what it is, but just a basic biblical truth that was contrary to the orthodoxy of the world and the response, really, I was shocked by it. Getting, is a man that was fairly newly converted and had a lot of unbelieving friends. And, and it was hatred, people trying to mock him, saying he doesn't even deserve to have a voice, get him off of this platform. He's hateful and if, just speaking truth. He's just taking a stand for Christ. And so that's what the world might do, to try to make you feel like like the smallest thing in the world, to belittle you, to mock you, to ridicule you, to cancel you, to say you have no voice, get away, you don't even belong in the conversation. You're going to get that more and more if you're taking a stand for Christ. So part of the help 
against this temptation is simply to realize we should expect this. We live in the midst of a sinful and adulterous world. So we shouldn't be surprised. And Jesus himself said, you should expect this. They hated me. They persecuted me. If you follow me, you should expect that. So that should help us. We should not be surprised. Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 14. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Don't think it's strange when you face persecution. He says, though some strange thing happened, as if some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So we should expect it. But secondly, when tempted, we need to consider this reality of Christ's return. Really consider it. Think about it. Meditate. There's a lot of truths in the scripture. I'm throwing a lot of things at you. Other preachers you listen to, they throw a lot of things at you. I listen to preaching, a lot of things get thrown at me. We need to learn to meditate on these things, to really think on these things, to to chew these things, so to speak, and and to consider and to think about the day of Christ and, and to more and more live with that day in view, to know that that day is coming. That will help you to follow Christ at all costs to remember he's coming again. When you're tempted, am I going to take a stand right now? You say, you know what? My Lord is coming again in great power and glory. And on that day, the only thing will matter is not what this person thinks of me or what they might do to me, but what my Lord thinks of me. And so remember that day when you are tempted. Keep it in view. Remember Daniel 7, speaking of the Son of Man. So you could go to a text like this and meditate on this. Daniel 7, that vision of the Son of Man, a vision of Christ. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away. And his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. My point is, if we really believe that and could see it, the temptation to be ashamed of Christ, we would be able to just say, I know who Christ is. I know that he's returning. And that temptation would have no power over us. This is the one coming again, this this glorious one. And when he does, nobody's gonna doubt whether it was worth it to follow him and to face whatever ridicule, or persecution they face. Nobody's going to doubt it. Nobody's going to be questioning on that day when Christ returns. Paul, in the midst of his sufferings for the gospel, said this. We'll close with this. He said, 2 Timothy 1.12, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him. I believe he's talking about his soul. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep my soul until that day. That day is that day when Christ returns. 
Paul lived with that day in view. We need to live with that day in view, the day of Christ. So may God help us to live with that sort of confidence that Paul had, that we might follow Christ all the days of our lives, unashamed to take a stand for him and for his words as we live in the midst of this adulterous and sinful generation, and that God would give us grace to shine as lights, to hold fast the word of truth, but also to hold it forth to a dying world who needs to hear these things. Consider the people that you are afraid to speak to, they have a never-dying soul too. They need to hear the truth. They need Christ. So may God help us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ at all costs. Let's pray. Gracious God, again, we thank you that we can hear your words and we pray that you would write them upon our hearts. Lord, give us grace, those of us who are following you, to follow you at all costs and to stand for you, to be unashamed. Help us to have this day of Christ clearly in view. And we pray for any who have not followed Christ and are still counting the cost. Our heart's desire is that they would know you, that they would embrace you, that they would follow you all the days of their life, that they would rejoice in the everlasting life that Christ freely gives. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.